0: All right. How the hell is everybody? Welcome to the QTR podcast. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum. To help support the podcast, as well as my longtime supporters over at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver provider. Love these guys. You can reach out to JM Bullion directly by emailing Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. She is there specifically For QTR podcast listeners, this way you get some personalized service. I know ordering gold and silver bullion can be a little bit of a pain in the ass, but JM Bullion has a great reputation. They have done over $7 billion in sales. They've been in business for over a decade. I love the way that they ship discreetly. I love that they always have great inventory. I Actually, they are like one set of emails that I get, like a mailing list that I'm on that I actually don't mind getting because I like checking out whatever new they have in stock. And uh, just generally good people to do business with if you are looking to own gold or silver bullion. Uh, I've had always great experiences with them, ordering from them. So I say it as a customer, uh, not just as somebody, uh, you know, not just as a sponsoree. Uh, but I do love JM Bullion. Check them out. Their link is in my podcast description, or you can email Laura at jmbullion.com and tell her the Q-Man sent you. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Me and Sang Lucci are planning a get-together at some point. I think we're going to try to do it in Philly. We just started having a conversation about it, you know, where we can do like a uh, a meet and greet and, you know, get a whole bunch of people together all in a room and, You know, we'll have an open bar and just see what happens. But, uh, anyways, until such time, I'm happy to shout out Lucci and Wall Street Jesus and the Steam Room, which, in my opinion, is the number one piece of software available to keep track of unusual activity in the options market. Check out where flow and steam, as Wall Street Jesus calls it, is going in the options market, which, as experienced investors know, many times leads to uh, is a precursor to moves in the equities market so that information can be useful sometimes if you don't use it like an idiot uh, etc etc check out the steam room it's a piece of software that's been in the works for 10 years it's aesthetically beautiful it's a wonderful community these guys have and they're honest people to do business with That link is in my podcast description. Also, my longtime supporter, George Gammon, over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George, I want to thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh. By the way, I just listened to Lynn Alden do a great uh, debate on Bitcoin on Kitco a couple days ago. Uh, Just an aside there for no reason at all. But anyways, George has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, to help you learn how to preserve your wealth in a world of of out-of-control central banks, and they are out of control, and we will discuss that today. Rebel Capitalist Pro, worth its weight if you ask my opinion. It's got a forum. It gives you access to live Q&As. George also has free signups on his YouTube channel. Uh, George Gammon, he has another channel called Rebel Capitalist. Check them both out, please. Uh, George Gammon knows what he's talking about when he talks about the plumbing of the global economic system. He gets it in a way that I don't. So make sure you shout out George Gammon and say what's up to him. Happy to call him a friend. And hopefully we'll have him on again uh, very soon. Check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. It's in the podcast description. Also, check out my friends over at Doomberg, my favorite sub stack. Oh, the link to that. all oh, just, just making noises for nobody. Oh, the link to that is in my podcast description. I think is what I'm trying to say. Hey, special shout out today to one of my longest patrons, Chris Gerard, who I bumped into in Atlantic City a couple of days ago. I want to shout him out for being a longtime supporter, and then I also want to apologize for whatever state of mind I was in during the course of that meeting. (laughs) Chris caught me pretty late in a long, long, long day of hanging out and uh, enjoying myself with some of my friends, but it was rad to, uh, to meet him in person. So I want to shout out my buddy, Chris Gerard today. Thank you so much for your continued support and for all of my patrons that continue to support me. Uh, you guys, uh, are really something else. Uh, it means a lot to me. It really does. Uh, everybody that has signed up, uh, for my blog fringe finance, I just released my 23 stocks for 2023 that I'm watching for 2023. Not financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not recommending buying or selling any securities. Just some names that I'm keeping an eye on that I may happen to be dabbling in. Uh, And you can read that and, you know, do whatever you would like with it. But I'm not recommending anything. Check out my blog, Fringe Finance. The link to that is also in my podcast description. All right. Now that I am done kissing my own ass, kissing Chris Gerard's ass, kissing the sponsor's ass, it's time to kiss my guest's ass. You'll have to excuse me if I sound nasally or uh, congested because I am, in fact, nasally and congested. All right. With all that being said, I want to welcome my guest, Chris DeMuth Jr., who I can't believe this is the first time we've ever done a podcast, given that Chris was one of the first guys I ever met, I think I ever talked to from Seeking Alpha a long time ago. When I first, first, first started writing and knew, believe it or not, even less than I know today, which I know is astonishing. And uh, and then I saw Chris from, Chris runs Sifting the World on uh, Seeking Alpha and uh, Rangely Capital. And then I saw him somewhere at a conference where he went on an intricate, like 30 minute long speech about how to get all of these like crazy deals. <laughs> I'll never forget it. It was like, it was basically like extreme couponing, but like for the financial world. I'd never heard anything like it. He was like, you know, I took a $1,000, deposited it in this bank where they give you a $200 fee for, they give you a $200 bonus for signing up. You know, I take that 1200 I put it into a 30-year T-bill. I take the interest from that, I put it in this. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, this guy's on another fucking level. Uh, having said all of that, I'm happy to welcome Chris DeButh here. How are you?
1: Chris, it's great. Great to speak with you. Great to hear your voice. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Thank you for contributing, uh, to the blog, Fringe Finance. So stoked to put your stuff up there. And I know people enjoy reading it and you are truly, the thing I like about you is, you know, you're exceptionally intelligent. You're, you're very you know you're a classy guy you dress well you're you know you don't curse you're not one of these uh you know out of the gutter type individuals like myself but we see eye to eye on so many things especially when it comes to macro and so it's always great to have uh, a friend who people take seriously (laughs) and that's kind of what you are you're my friend that people kind of take seriously that happens to agree with me on some things
1: Well, it's been a terrible couple years for self-appointed authorities on almost every topic. You know, if you think about uh, 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 a kind of policy, the the things that you're supposed to think uh, have been just dead wrong, time after time after time. Um, So uh, the kind of uh, remnant hodgepodge of people who have not easily gone along on on a lot of topics have uh, been vindicated, uh, at least not being kind of reflexively uh, uh, convergent on things authorities have told us to think. Uh, So uh, uh, I don't know if that speaks well of us or open to other ideas, but it certainly speaks badly of the things we were supposed to think.
0: Well, we could go down the list of those things that you're talking about where – the narrative has just been proven wrong, whether it's in finance, whether it's political, whether it's in macro, whether it's you know, ideological, whatever. But I guess on a broader perspective, one of my other guests, I think it was Tom Bodrovich, said, you know, there's no accountability for people getting big things wrong. Let's just talk, you know, transitory inflation, right? That's a big thing that the Fed got wrong things that we were told about the COVID vaccines. There's some big things that people got wrong. You know, things that we're told in the political world, some big lies. I mean, nothing new for politics, but do you think this is just par for the course and I'm just getting angrier as I get older and it appears more blatant to me? Or do you think we're really we're at an inflection point here where it might start to catch on with people. I I can never tell if it's, I'm I'm getting older, Chris, or if things are actually getting more egregious.
1: I think that, uh, I I should start off by saying I'm very comfortable with, wrongness and making mistakes you know we've had terrific years where i was dead wrong maybe a third of the time about things that i was pretty pretty uh confident of at the time uh and i think a lot of uh you know in a good year winners pay for losers and then leave something left over in a good year you can size uh things uh according to probability and be wrong a lot uh but in The private sector and with my own money and with alignment uh i kind of have to eat my own cooking and i um uh try to couch all my views probabilistically i think the problem and what has certainly been increasing has been just breathtaking arrogance centralization, right. and very tightly coupled views where there is no alignment, where there is uh, something presented with just utter certainty. And um, you find this in areas that are intrinsically probabilistic, and if you look generationally, uh, geez, you know, the, the the best practices kind of pivot back and forth on, you know, certainly in the case of, like, health policy, uh, uh, where Somebody says, you know, you have, to do, you, know so you have to do this. And the problem is a lot of our authorities don't bounce back and forth between playing with ideas, doing the best they can, and thinking probabilistically where they say, hey, it's 60-40 one day, maybe it's 70-30 the next day. They say it, they take the whole world and they divide it into things that should be required and things that should be banned. And right. <laughs> so, so they're, 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 I think you have centralization, tight coupling, and hubris at a spectacular scale and that's why things seem more volatile and they would even if they were uh, bright and well-meaning people in many cases they're uh, stupid and not well-meaning people <laughs> but uh, but even if they were uh, it just makes the consequences huge and it also makes them look ridiculous when they kind of you know um, uh, uh, go back and forth um, on something uh, that, in very short order, uh, proves to be, uh, both incorrect and motivated or corrupt. Um, and when it's, uh, motivated or corrupt, there's almost no reference to that thing they said 30 days ago, which right. we all remember, which we all were there for. And you feel kind of, uh, uh, uh you feel kind of, um, is if you're not sure if you're supposed to bring up that you were listening the whole time. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'd say it's been a terrible era for authorities of all sorts. Like, I can't even think of that many exceptions. Um, and, uh, but it also makes it an interesting era for, you know, Substack, your Substack, and, and other people who just had to write without pretense of authority, just with, ideas and thinking about stuff and paying attention and observing uh and and if you look at the audience for those kind of voices exploding there seems to be a real uh taste for it
0: yeah and that's nice I'm encouraged by that but I I can't help but get angry when I see things like I'm not sure if you listened to Brett Weinstein's last podcast with Joe Rogan but you know he Brett Weinstein and Chris Martinson were two people that spoke to this guy, Geert van den Bosch, who is a uh, vaccinologist. He's an expert in vaccines. They talked to him, I don't know, six months ago, a year ago, about the effects of launching a vaccine during the midst of a pandemic. And what he said on both of those interviews at the time was that doing that would uh, accelerate the creation of variants. That, you know, it was relatively well known by people who were experts in vaccinology and how these vaccines worked, that they would likely make things worse instead of better uh, in terms of uh, creating variants and uh, prompting the virus, I guess to, uh, to to understand you know the the, the body's uh, natural like combatants against it. Uh, <clears throat> about a year ago, when this started to get tossed around for the first time, And if you brought it up, you were shunned, you were kicked off social media. I mean, this guy wasn't taken seriously by anybody in the mainstream media, despite overwhelming credentials. And you can look him up and Google him. I remember reading through his credentials first before listening to the interviews to make sure that he was somebody that could understand what he was talking about i'm not brent weinstein i'm not a evolutionary biologist so i really don't have much of a gauge as to whether or not you know somebody is coming close to making sense when it comes to this stuff so i looked him up i said wow he really does seem to have a uh, a great resume chock full of credentials a year ago you were shunned you were labeled a conspiracy theorist you couldn't talk about it uh here we are in 2023 And as Brett pointed out on Joe's podcast, the Washington Post is now writing articles saying, hey, did you know that releasing vaccines at this point in the pandemic could accelerate the creation of variants? And, you know, what what Weinstein postulated on Rogan's podcast was essentially that they are uh, making their etch in history so that years from now they can point back and say, hey, we did say it. But to me, it's... It, it it's almost more frustrating that way because it's that year that we lost. Yeah. You know, almost like with the distribution of the vaccines themselves without long term safety data, it's the two years we lost and what happened during those two years of consequence, not just the people that were shunned, but who profited, right? Who benefited from that. And, you know, now these people want the same credit for looking back and saying, Oh, you know, we always said it, you know, or, or, oh, we got we got the transitory narrative wrong, Chris. You know, what do you what do you make of that? Do you, is it, the, ne, is uh, it nefarious or are they just stupid and can't catch up?
1: The, the health authorities uh, and the mainstream media on this are kind of like cell site analysts after some disastrous, right. disastrous call on stock, <laughs> which is I've always thought they would be extremely valuable if you just also had a time machine. Right, if you had both of their, uh, their, uh, their analysis and their price targets, but you could also trade at that moment minus even just a minus a week or so, it would be immensely valuable. But without the time machine, it's kind of irritating and worse than useless. Um, I, I think that it would have been such a perfect test case for decentralized uh, decision-making uh, possibly with some kind of standards and, you know, you could have uh, statistics and you could have measurements and you could have people who are trying to, in an organized fashion, do good science and, and let us know what they're learning. But I think that what we found out about um, the vaccines, uh, they have, uh, they've had to kind of change their story, I mean, <laughs> a dozen times uh, since they r- rolled out, but Um, the the cross-tabs and comorbidities on these are so incredibly important that you have these different populations, uh, you know, basically the younger and healthier you get, um, the uh, higher standards and the more dubious it becomes. Um, uh, The, you know, the elderly with comorbidities and caretakers, it's a very different situation. And you had different cohorts with different... uh, uh, philosophies and how to deal with different family situations, uh, many of which weren't publicly known or knowable, and so it was a perfect situation for people to make different personal health decisions. Where it really right. was a public health decision because uh, people with uh, the vaccine can pass it on, right. and uh, people uh, who were, uh, in many cases, uh, chided much more aggressively, like schoolchildren, um, and uh, they and there was really bad data science in terms of all of the other costs. Uh, it was treated as if it was kind of this one thing, like it of this uh, public um, uh, uh, attention that was kind of as if we said, we're in a crisis, so let's forget all the other things we know right. um, about, the, including things that uh, progressives tend to... Uh, pay a lot of lip service to. Uh, Not just the importance of education, but the kind of social importance of school. I thought it was very interesting um, that uh, where I came from, the uh, uh, public schools uh, just shut down. The uh, Catholic parochial schools kind of got back on their feet after uh, a few months. And the ritzy private schools never even debated right after the very first... I mean, they, they had... The the rich kids were right back in, uh, you know, a serious learning environment, uh, got back on their feet almost immediately. And so you have these environments that, other than this one issue, where you're talking about basis points of risk for young, healthy people. um, uh, But then you have uh, people with every possible advantage kind of gaining a year, two years, um, on uh, poor kids. Uh, I mean, that's 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 a big head start to give people who already had a big head start. Well, and it, so it was incredibly it, regressive and it was uh, had almost I mean, I think that we're going to statistically see almost no health consequences on the benefit side and massive socioeconomic uh, uh, and psychological costs on the cost side.
0: Yeah. And it's a great endorsement for the private sector versus the. The government being in charge, isn't it? I mean, it's really a microcosm of that argument when people say, you know, if we take the government out of air traffic control, aren't planes just going to be running into each other? It's like, no, there is a private sector solution that, you know, we assure you can manage capital a lot better, can be more resourceful, can be more efficient and probably do a better job. You know, it's one of those situations where. With the parochial schools, it's the same thing, right? Why did they probably reopen? Well, they they probably uh, they had a financial interest in reopening, I'm sure, and certainly their customers, probably uh, the parents, probably were pushing for it as well. And so again, the private sector makes up their mind a, a year before the government, and and they reap the rewards of that. As Absolutely, as, as you're stating.
1: <clears throat> and the nice thing about a more
0: decentralized. Answer in a
1: crisis too is that you're collecting real-time information uh, constantly. Uh, The uh, remote education worked a little worse than I might have thought, you know. And that's not me kind of cherry picking after the fact. That's that's just like what we were learning in the in the course of it. Um, And it too was very uh, localized in terms of what the home environment was like, right? Like if you're going home to a you know, violent, drunk mom and dad. That's really different than if you're going home right. to a tutor for each of your classes and a homework room with a dedicated computer. Uh, and uh, and and there are kids in each situation and their families uh, in schools that could have kind of locally responded uh, with a lot more uh, nuance. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been um, it's been a funny year a couple of years uh, for, for authorities of all types, Uh, but uh, certainly, um, certainly uh, disappointing in terms of health authorities and boy, did they lose so much of their kind of political capital and credibility. You could imagine a crisis in a few years from now, you could imagine a COVID, but with a thousand times the mortality, you're going to have some populace that is just uh, kind of despondent and uh, uh, rejects even really, Good advice, right. uh, having been given really bad uh, counsel once uh, with um, with such certainty and such wrongness.
0: Yeah, I said exactly that on a, another podcast. I said, what's going to happen when it's Ebola and yeah. the mortality rate is a thousand times higher and it's a thousand times more important that we do strategize in a way that you know provides us with the solution and the government does you know provide something nobody's gonna want to follow their advice and you know a, a lot of this is gonna spill over to what I think I mean look either I'm a clueless bear who you know is seeing things through a jilted Austrian lens that is just completely unrealistic uh, and I'm stuck in the past. You know, these are the things that somebody churned out of the uh, Princeton Economics Department would would probably tell you about looking at things through the Austrian perspective. Now, so it's either that, or you know, we are we continue to walk up the step ladder uh, one step further every day to just tarnishing the credibility of our financial institutions our our central bank to a degree where they it won't come back you know and that's that's the ultimate can't put the genie back in the bottle problem right i mean do do you think that that's really happening or do you think that um do you think that people still have a good degree of confidence in our central bank and and their strategies <sighs>
1: um i think that we got to an incredibly silly place where you had this kind of convergent kind of no opportunity cost moment of close to 0% interest rates and COVID at the same time. So you also had, in a sense, zero for many people, 0% um, opportunity cost for your time. Right. Uh, and so if you look at a lot of the bubbles in different areas that happened nearly simultaneously kind of 2020 through 2022, to first quarter or so you look at the kind of weirdest time it was what happens if I don't really have a second best or at least second most serious use for my money or time uh and so uh uh and a lot of the mentality that was sucked out of Um, not exclusively, but mostly male, not exclusively, but mostly younger uh, kind of monkey dancing, need for competition, need for uh, risk and uncertainty and feeling kind of virile and alive that would often go into sports betting, bar fighting, all of the kind of (laughs) behavior that turned to securities. Uh, yeah. Kind of weirdly, and you listen to the vernacular or you read something on reddit, and it's not even it 's not even the normal language that goes along with uh, credit analysis or risk management or position sizing or or, or cracking the 10k and thinking about the fundamental values. I mean it was, it was like talking about it was, it was very uh, strange. It was almost like listening to somebody speak who uh, speaks English as a second language but never picked up on colloquial terms because it was, just, it was just different people talking about different things, but they were in the securities market, um, especially around the time of free trades. For some reason, the free trades and presenting it on a mobile app in the form that was more like social apps and more like betting apps, uh, just drove the world pretty crazy for a while. My hope is that as interest rates rise, I, I think much too late, much too slowly. Uh, my view of coming out of the financial crisis in 2008-2009 was we needed to have symmetry raising them just, just to have opportunity cost and consequence. And, and if you look at um, a place that it really showed up, is if you look at uh, SPAC pitch decks and you look at the uh, slide, the inevitable slide on the TAM. You see there's going to be this oh my God, uh, yeah. uh, uh, total addressable market <laughs> and Chris here's what I'd like from you. I'd like your money right now and um, I'm uh, not making any money right now. There's no profits. There's no revenues. Um, there's not even a plan particularly to get any call it in the next couple of years but in the later part of this decade Call it 2028, 20, 2029, 20, 2030. 20, um, uh, we're going to have this multi trillion dollar market. Um, for some reason, I'm not going to have competition. I'll be the one who gets it. And um, this science project idea is going to work and it's going to be worth this an immense amount. As long as the cumulative cost of your capital sitting in my pocket between now and then is call it like 5, 10, 15, 20%. It's amazing that people really had a taste for that. Um, it uh, uh, it was probably a bad idea 99% of the time, maybe 100% of the time. Um, it might have been subjectively dubious, but there you couldn't kind of solve for being worthless. Once that cumulative interest rate starts to get really jacked up, right? once you have a real cost to the capital, you can kind of solve for it not working pretty quickly. And so I think we're kind of getting into the realm of a real kind of supply-demand dynamic around capital where it's not just limitless in a way that actually not just funds uh, stupid ideas, but it kind of becomes this crazyocracy where it's like, the more ludicrous, the almost more interesting it is. Yeah, if everything gets yep. funded, you have to you have to be more dramatic if you're allowed to say anything, and there's an audience for it. It's like it the, it's starves, like the polls reversing. Yeah, it actually starves sobriety. Like if you just have a normal idea that amongst their virtues is that it's true, you're actually you actually can have a harder time getting the same capital. And so I think um, uh, I. I, I uh, I would, I, I would defend this Fed uh, against almost no charges that you could bring against them. Uh, so I wouldn't stand in their defense as much as the amount, even that we've moved, will enforce a little seriousness. And if you look at uh, the the kind of aggregators of the least serious uh, things, if you look at Kathy, uh, what's ARC, uh, if you look at the other kind of collectors of uh, profitless uh, uh, science projects, um, they they could survive when there's close to no interest rates. I think this is going to be a much harder environment for them. And as much as they had a pretty rough last year, they didn't particularly have a rough year. On, the, on my bear thesis, which was that they're going to have huge redemptions. They never really did. Like their, right. their fans have kind of stuck with them. And for much of the year, uh, Tesla was their big saving grace. Uh, and, and so you kind of come uh, 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 forward and think some of the worst ideas are going to be really stressed, even with a modicum of seriousness in the uh, central banks.
0: Yeah, and, you know, that's something that I wrote about last year, the fact that that Tesla was the only string that ARK was hanging on to. And I can't believe even with Tesla getting decimated over the last year that ARK hasn't gotten decimated more. But I guess they're doing well to actively – I mean, they've gone from 130 to 30, which is not particularly wonderful performance. But, yeah, you know, uh, one thing that interests me is how long is it going to take before – because, look, I think you're 100% right, okay? it's obvious that the error of 0% rates combined with the lunacy of what happened during COVID where we basically stopped, you know, I use the analogy of taking a tire off of a car while it's doing 90 down the highway. You know, the, the car was the economy was the car doing 90 and we just swapped out the tire while it was moving. We took yeah. out the legitimate economy. We re- replaced it with money printing, which consequently meant that all the things that need to function for a normal economy to function, the productivity, the labor, those things all just kind of disappeared. But the stock market kept churning higher, which is exceptionally, it's not just paradoxical, but it's, like you said, it creates almost an idiocracy in the financial world where you know, that the worst decisions are celebrated. So so now that the polls are reversing, right, like uh, north is south and now south is north again, and we're kind of moving back to some financial, st- you know, stability as it relates to basic economic laws, how long do you think that it's going to take the 5% federal funds rate that we're almost at now to right the entire economic ship because the car's still doing, we may not be doing 90, but we're still moving straight and we're doing 50 down that same highway right now. And there's no doubt in my mind that the interest rate, um, policy that we are, uh, putting into place now is completely incompatible with, not just how the economy is set up right now with the with the debt and the leverage, but also it's completely outside of the syntax and the um, uh, comprehension of a majority of the new market participants over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of joked in the middle of the bull market because I, I, I was kind of losing my mind from 2009 to 2019 over a total, like, Short-term lack of chickens coming home to roost and I think in this last year they've like all like stampeded home to roost at the same time. it was almost hard to uh, hard to exploit and uh, keep track of all of them that can't we just raise the interest rate to five percent for one quarter just to reveal the fraudsters and wipe out everybody who should be bankrupt because we weren't seeing any bankruptcies and fraudsters could keep uh, a pretty well. Uh, hidden. I mean, a lot of these frauds are not based on evil necessarily. I mean, they're compromised people, but they're mostly based on pressure and low interest rates take the pressure off. And in a world, you know, if you look at uh, fifty companies that promise uh, uh, a fortune, honor, and glory in a decade. I mean, what percentage of them are simply lying? I mean, I think zero is the wrong answer. Uh, uh, Maybe not all of them, but probably some double-digit percentage are just simply lying fraudsters, uh, bad guys. Uh, And so we have not seen, I mean, we've seen, I guess, in the crypto world specifically, but in the equity world, we have not seen kind of... uh, a big number of frauds revealed i think we will we've not seen a big number of bankruptcies yet i think we will um and we haven't seen short of bankruptcy just the credit guys taking their position in uh, uh kind of dictating terms and I, and I think that we will so sort of real bankruptcy i think that the bond market's going to have a big say here uh as they should um and you'll just end up with a uh, a functional society with a different set of owners.
0: But you don't think the market as it's priced today really reflects current interest rates, do you?
1: No, I think that it's been very optimistic and slow, strangely slow, um, uh, to um, take into account how badly the consumer is set up and how badly a lot of corporations are set up to uh, weather this. Now there, there's been some uh, things that make sense to me. If you look at last year uh, at the it's not exactly how I value it, how I use the term, but let's just call it vaguely kind of the value versus the growth um, uh, and uh, 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 indicators in the market. And I think that value has um, come back quite a bit so that there, that there has been a kind of a relative value, re kind of rating within the stock market that makes sense so some of it makes sense but i think overall it's pretty dang um optimistic if you look internationally something that i've become increasingly fixated on is just i I run i'm very interested in all of the kind of fundamental ratings by country market Um, i love arbitrariness i mean i think the thing that gets me into stocks and gets me into investing is really I like games and I like looking at all of how kind of um, the rules of the game are set up and I love arbitrariness and I've always thought it was a weird arbitrariness how much capital people invest in their home markets and so I'm like if you spread valuation by country um, the U.S. is really high and it's uh, stayed really expensive kind of throughout this past year Um, I have a number of country markets I like more than the U.S. right now um, for putting new capital to work. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think that one of the problems is, at our worst, the things that I'd like to be most improved, including problems with our currency, including uh, problems uh, with our economy, um, there's a lot of places around the world that are subjectively worse, or in terms of demographics, in terms of, you know, like, it's still a pretty good a pretty durable country in a lot of ways, even with all of its faults. So there's not like, there's, there's nowhere that's an obvious, uh, symmetrically good story uh, that, uh, that you can lay next to us and say, well, I'm not going to invest in the U.S., I'm going to invest in this other place instead. There's bargains. There's places I like because they're cheap. There's places I like that are better because they're cheap, but not necessarily places I like because they're super responsible and they have a really great Fed and really great currency.
0: Well what are like your top two favorite markets outside the US now if you had to allocate?
1: Yeah, so I um two that I mentioned on um fridge finance that I love um and I still like here are Poland and Mexico. Um so I think there's a lot of specific opportunities in both. Um, uh, and I'd written about this if, if people want to go back to, I think it was early October. Um, the, just the convenient one to do is Mexico has MXF, which is just a closed-end fund. Poland has EPOL. Um, uh, Own in, like, both of them. Um, I think they're both just super, super cheap markets, but also I think if you look at uh, a retrenchment from globalization, it's not that practical or likely that we can kind of de-globalize back to the nation states because of our high labor costs. But I think it's quite practical to kind of have regional um, uh, powers such as the EU and the U.S. have low labor costs that are quite competitive with China come to closer and friendlier uh, shores. And so I think that's going to be Poland for Europe and Mexico for the U S and they uh, I think have the most to be gained from tension with China uh, regionally Uh, if you just look at cheapness I mean you a a problem with kind of uh, fighting these things subjectively is that you sort of unwind a lot of the value of of uh, 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 of, of just looking quantitatively at cheapness. You know, when, I, when I wrote that thing for you, uh, I mentioned um, Mexico and Poland. The other two that I was working on that I was like, for different reasons I didn't really want to talk about were uh, Turkey and Russia. Uh, Turkey, for different reasons, has done very, very well. Um, it's subjectively a little hairier. And Russia is very difficult to invest in. I have kind of one way to do that that's fairly convenient. But um, that's a tricky one. But if you just look at raw cheapness, those are the other two that really jumped out. Kind of at the other end of the extreme, just much, much cheaper for book book value, for sales, for revenue, uh, for earnings than the U.S. is.
0: Let's talk about Russia because to me it seems like and I have written as much on my blog many times over, it seems like the global economy is dividing into two right now. It seems like, and I don't have a lot of perspective, okay? I've only been interested in finance really for maybe 10 years, and I've only Uh been commenting on this stuff for, you know, 10 years, seven years maybe. And so I'm just learning, and I certainly don't have a broad, uh, multi-decade-long perspective. But to me... The best that I can understand, it appears as though the global economy is dividing into two. On one side, we have the West, we have the you know the U.S., and we have our allies in Europe and our fiat system. And right now, it looks as though the BRICS nations—Russia, China, India, Saudi Arabia, uh, and several others— uh, are allying themselves with one another— preparing to challenge the dollar i mean saudi arabia came out yesterday and said they are now looking at other currencies to transact uh oil in which is a huge uh tea leaf to read when it comes to the 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 petrodollar which really underpins part of the dollar's reserve status um you know we kind of push this plan we kind of catalyzed this. I mean, Russia and China had been de-dollarizing for 10 years, but we kind of catalyzed this plan even further with the you know, proposed economic sanctions on Russia. Um, to me it 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 appears as though those nations are really trying to create essentially their own miniature world economy amongst themselves where you know, they certainly have plenty of the productive capacity. Uh, you know, they certainly have they're certainly on the come up and they certainly have the population and they seem to understand that backing things with commodities and things that are finite and tangible could be the way to, to kind of break free from the Pangea of the global economy as it stands now. Are we at, in your opinion, a new epoch here or am I just inexperienced and everything will be I, fine? I, I,
1: I think, uh, uh there's a real change with how much the U.S. wants to be a real participant um, in global affairs that other than our role in the Cold War, we had this kind of um, uh, authority and deference because we weren't uh, as... Uh, engaged in some of these specific, uh, kind of especially on the other side of the Cold War, um, uh, battles as we are uh, right now. As we get uh, quite, and, and let me say, uh, what I'm about to say is intended to be completely uh, amoral. It's not any kind of uh, commentary on any of these people involved, but I think it's had a huge reaction, not just from Russia, but from China. And also remember, china is just much 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 bigger and more important as an economy i mean there are small regions of china with economies as big as russia um and so um it's it really matters in a lot of ways much more um the way that the u.s has gone after and targeted oligarchs uh for the nation states uh, 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 decisions and actions in ukraine i think is probably one of the biggest things to change the nature of a lot of these regimes thinking the decision makers in non-democratic countries like Saudi Arabia uh, and, and uh, China, uh, I think, have really taken a second look at how important it is to not be reliant on systems run and based on the U.S. Right. Um, so I think, that, I think that that has kind of been uh, transformative. Um, and again, not a moral stance – uh pro or con but just thinking about things could change a lot in the future and if i just robotically look at cheapness uh russia is very cheap russia is very difficult to invest in um one of the things i think is extremely attractive to me right now and um one can assume that i'm literally talking my book or invested uh or this this is uh, there's a closed-end fund uh, central and eastern europe fund, uh, ticker CEE, and they've just marked down their Russian assets, but they still have a lot of, uh, they, they changed you know, the name, they've kind of scrubbed Russian references, uh, but if you look at it right now, uh, it appears to be trading at a kind of an anomalous uh, premium to NAV. So the NAV is marked at $7.35, uh, it's trading above 9 at this point. Um, but the real NV is probably at least twice what it's marked at. If you gave any kind of a normal valuation to uh, Russian assets, it's probably you know, 14, 15 somewhere in there. So if that's a really good bargain. And because they've marked it down, you're not—you like, have this exposure if they—if uh, Russia kind of comes back online, if there's a post-Putin world, if they. Uh, You know the the world can change a lot, and it can uh, surprise me by changing for the better. I'm not an optimist in any way, but I love I love upside exposure as long as I don't have to pay for it. Here, you you are paying for it probably a buck fifty at this point, uh, but you probably have you know a buck fifty down. Call it six up uh, for. Uh, you know, Russia uh, kind of coming back online at some point in the next few years. So that's, I think an interesting, and it's really just,
0: just as a way to get exposure to Russia. It's interesting because there is almost, yeah. there, there are so few ways to yeah. get exposure to Russia right now. Yeah. And, and, and,
1: and weirdly, whenever there have been um, institutions that are willing to reconcile uh, somebody who's already had it or move it on this, or that I've, I've kind of called up constantly and said, Hey, I have no exposure yet. But if I want some, how can I kind of, can I buy it at a discount or there can, and that's, it's very, very, very hard, uh, as much as I've kind of pawed around for it, but just in terms of quantitative, uh, cheapness, uh, Russia's really cheap. Turkey's been really cheap. They're really hairy. And, um, I'm not looking to be the face of, uh, Putin's Russia and the stock market or anything, but, um, but that is one way that one can get that exposure.
0: Yeah, that in and of itself is was worth the conversation right there because if I knew that you had a, a way, that I, I talked to a bunch of people that started trying to take on exposure to Russia during the beginning of the crisis before the uh, all of the sanctions went into place, and myself included. I, you know, I had Gazprom shares, I had RSX shares. You know, I was buying RSX on the way down. I never, I never figured they would halt the product and then just not, you know. But that's what they did, and that's that. I mean, those are the risks that you take. But, yeah, I mean, I find that very interesting. Uh, I wonder how it would fare in a situation where Russia does come, you know, their economy continues, but they're not welcome to back onto the onto the global stage. I mean, the the assets, uh, I, I'm not sure where they're listed or, or how they decide to mark them to zero if they're just doing it as, uh, you know, a, political gesture or if the assets are really worth zero, uh, I can't imagine that they are. Um, if they're just doing it just to say, hey, you know, we've done it so that everything to the upside is a call option at this point. Um, I don't know. Do, do you know, I, do you know I, exactly I think what they're that, doing?
1: I think, I think that they uh, wanted and got less attention this way. Right. Um, uh, and and I think in, you know, and, and it very... Worse, you have seven bucks and change of um, you know Pol- and 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 of course I love Poland too. So right, so the fact that a lot of the other um, top holdings are uh, Polish, I think gives me. I mean, if you fully marked up the even the seven dollars of NAV to what I think the underlying um, uh, companies are worth, you kind of break even here at nine dollars. So I think it's. I think their intent and my use for it is largely. Um, let's, uh, have as much, um, you know, yeah, call option, embedded call option that's misunderstood, um, with a plausible valuation. It wouldn't be a huge focus of mine necessarily, but I own in like, uh, 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 the, uh, uh EPOL, um, you know, just pulling shares here, uh, and think that that's a bargain Between sixteen and seventeen dollars. So, like, you know, my um, CEE is actually not that different than that, between nine and ten. And then, you know, call it, uh, you know, another, you know, fifty percent upside if Russia normalizes. So, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a lot uh, there that's going to do well um, until, you know. Uh, things are pretty different than they are now, but but you do have uh, this call option.
0: Well, what do you think will happen? What do you what do you think the global economy looks like in five years?
1: Um, more regional. Uh, so I think it looks more uh, like kind of mercantile systems in the 16, 17, 1800s and I think that's why some of these uh, kind of puzzle pieces uh, with lower labor costs regionally. Uh, could do uh, well. Uh, I mentioned my Europe and North America one. I don't, I don't have an instant answer in South America or, or in Asia. Um, I think China has a lot of demographic headwinds. Um, I think that where I am probably the least muddled um, is on the commodity side. That if you look at um, My favorite currency is probably crude. Uh, My favorite, uh, you know, I'm long some gold, I'm long some silver uh, in various ways, Um, but I'm really long oil and gas um, and much more comfortable on the supply side than the demand side. I think that uh, kind of regionally functional. Uh, kind of more mercantile systems kind of put themselves back together. I think that accrues to the benefit of countries like Mexico and Poland, um, and uh, that we kind of muddle through that way. Uh, But throughout all of this, uh, I think one of the most – people people complain about partisanship and disagreeing. I'm always horrified when everybody's agreeing – uh, and when there's kind of bipartisan, uh, I, I, I universally held views. And I think the antagonisms um, against specific industries, once they become so popular that they become kind of widespread and bipartisan, can be, one, really, really dangerous. It's where, like, the worst policy is made. You know, if you look at the history of the past 20 or 30 years, every time somebody kind of wisely says – uh, everybody should uh, be able to or own their own, uh, it's almost always a few years before some cataclysmic disaster. Right? You know, everybody should own their own home, everybody should go to college, everybody... And you kind of have Republicans just as much as Democrats kind of wisely nodding at that, uh, and it's almost always before some kind of uh, 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 multi trillion or billion dollar scandal uh, uh, in the uh, uh, history of antagonizing industry. Uh, If you look at um, I was going back the other day and I put this little thing up um, uh, to the companies I've really uh, liked as individual companies have this kind of funny history of, of antagonism. It doesn't work quite the way that uh, the rhetoric would sound like what if you look at tobacco in the 80s and 90s and then if you look at uh, healthcare plans uh, in the aughts um, uh, they were being vilified; like they were the most hated companies. Um, and you know, you look at uh, Altria is up five thousand percent since the <laughs> states say uh, United Health is up two thousand percent since right. Obamacare. And so you vilify these companies, and the first thing the politicians do is they obliterate entrance and make it nearly impossible for anybody to compete with these companies they hate. The second thing is they give speeches but when the laws are actually written. They're largely written by the lobbyists for these companies that they hate. And then thirdly embedded in them is a lot of things that were the companies to do them on their own without the government, they Mm -hmm. would be antitrust violations, right? The tobacco companies agree, Hey, let's cut our costs deeply by agreeing that we're not going to all advertise to the same addicted consumer or the, uh, the, uh, 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 healthcare plans making themselves impervious to uh, a certain kind of lawsuits. There's all these things in there that are bonanza for incumbents, that basically uh, they're treated as if they're being punished, but they're not being punished. The government's becoming limited partners uh, who make sure Uh that these companies, like uh, Philip Morris will be selling – Marlboro Reds 100 years from now, and that's only because of the government, right? These companies would actually start making health claims against each other were it not for the government prohibiting tobacco from making health claims on their products. So you're going to have Marlboro Reds in the 22nd century, and that's because of the MSA. Uh, and United Health is probably going to be kicking along too because of Obamacare. And so, whenever they vilify these industries, it actually can be really good for the incumbents. And so, you have uh, today uh, the same kind of treatment going after the oil and gas companies, kind of you know universally uh, bipartisan uh, of, of, of vilification. Uh, this administration's particularly aggressive, and uh, they're going to do things like say, "Hey, we're going to make it almost impossible for you to bring new supply online." Right. I think what if, if you and I, if, if you were Chevron and I was Occidental Petroleum and they recorded us saying the things the government's demanding of them, we'd go to jail for violating any trust laws, right? <laughs> um, uh, they, want this, and it, they want the supply to go down, and then they're confused when the prices go up uh, of these companies that are just going to be able to keep using old refineries, keep using whatever existing exploration and production they have, bring nothing new online, and then send the money back to shareholders. Well, as a shareholder, that's fine with me. I mean, as a taxpayer, it's 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 disaster. For an average person who relies on their car and gas to get to work, it's a disaster. Um and it's a religion associated with uh an energy uh, transition that will rely on uh energy that we could bring online decades from now, and even then um is kind of weather based on the wind and the sun. And so it's it's, uh, it's, it's amazing how much actual action has been taken on ideas that uh, nobody really believes could work. And then one thing that's not ultimately controllable is the price of the commodity. And that's the truth teller. And if you look at, I mean they did almost everything they could in terms of emptying the, st- the strategic controlling reserve right before midterms um, to help win an election but you can only play that game once. There's not that many more tools in their toolkit, and they've completely lost their credibility with the Saudis. I mean, I think the Saudis, yeah, no. um, the, 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 it, it's, it's obvious uh, derision and mockery of the U.S. right now uh, from the Saudis. They know uh, that we lack credibility. We, the American government lacks credibility, and um, so I think they're in an incredibly uh, weak position to do anything about the commodity price.
0: Yeah, and it'll be just another lever that the BRICS nations, joined by Saudi Arabia, can pull when they want, when it suits them. You know, because while Saudi Arabia is in the midst of making deals with China right now, which is what's going on, oil deals, purchase agreements, export agreements, all in Chinese currency, you know, here we are vilifying our own domestic oil and gas producers. And and you can say what you want about other types of energy or electric vehicles coming online or, you know, climate protests. Look, oil and gas companies have been vilified for decades, Chris, right? Decades and decades. They've always been the enemy. I remember when I was 18 years old, you know, 20 years ago, it was the big oil and gas companies that were, you know, which is, interestingly enough, you know, that was kind of part and parcel with like big pharma, right? There was always a beef with big pharma, especially amongst i i you know when i was a, a democrat when i was uh, a leftist in my late teens and early 20s before i understood how the world worked you know it was always the big corporations kind of ironic i know it's been said a million times but i just find it funny how willing so many of these people are to throw down and throw their trust into these same corporations that they once vilified once they just have a little bit of fear and panic, which is what happened with COVID. Now we have to listen to everything Pfizer says, right? (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah, Yeah. no, it's really remarkable. Uh, And on the oil and gas side, I think we're very quickly going to become similar to the world of tobacco, where we both play lip service to attacking them rhetorically and subsidize the same companies. I mean, uh, I I think that five minutes after the government's done attacking oil and gas supply they're going to have to start subsidizing demand because uh, enough of their voters are going to be in trouble over, uh, their family economics are incompatible with uh, say European uh, 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 oil and gas prices. Um, The solution to that will not be an apology. It will not be a, Uh, regime regime change uh, or resignations, it will be subsidizing demand. (laughs) Uh, So, again, as a shareholder, I'm kind of stuck in this uh, strangely uh, perfect situation.
0: Yeah, and you know, you're not the only one. A lot of smart people that I talk to uh, feel the same way, although I've never heard it put that way, that, you know, once the government kind of vilifies an industry, it's it's actually a net positive for the incumbent. And because it does create a barrier to entry, right? And so, you know, uh, Exxon, Chevron, Gazprom, Shell, I mean, these will probably be the, the super majors forever, you know?
1: Well, it's, it's a protection racket. I mean, if you look at... The tobacco MSA with states, like they immediately came up with permanent spending priorities for that money that their budgets absolutely need. Um, so you could say it's a punishment in the same sense that a mob protection racket is punishment. But if I'm paying into that protection racket, which again wouldn't be legal if the government had not insisted upon it, right? If I had just said, hey hey Chris, you know what? We have this great deal with tobacco. Let's just send a bunch of cash to. 46 states and they'll kind of give us some space like that would be very illegal other than the fact that they insisted on it and the government itself signed it uh, and so we have this um, uh, slush fund that they uh now utterly rely on and um if i had a complaint uh paying to a protection racket and said hey you know uh uh smokeless tobacco it's it's certainly looking uh much 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 safer than uh, cigarettes. Uh, in fact, I think nicotine is a net health benefit, I'm not a doctor, uh, not official uh, health recommendation but I think that th- there, there are concerns with the smoking mechanics but I think that smokeless tobacco could um, save lives. I think it could be the biggest health breakthrough since penicillin. Uh, it's going to be you know it save million, you know could save millions of lives but um, could hurt my bottom line. I can get that government to crush it. I can, keep that, I, can keep, I can keep technological progress uh, off of our shores because of the MSA. Uh, and uh, that's where government kind of slips uh, from its normal goofy category to its really evil category.
0: Well, speaking of government, the last thing I want to ask you about is what you see in terms of the political climate in the country now. We, you know, just coming out of midterms with the Republicans barely winning uh, the House – uh heading into 2024 so it's now 2023 which means all of the primary bullshit will start soon and uh, by the end of this year it'll be in full force gale what do you what do you make of the political climate in the country right now where where have we been and where are we going
1: I think that uh the Results of 2022 could look very different by 2025 than it does in 2023, by which I mean um, the uh, Republican Party, and I'm not a Republican, uh, uh, but uh, uh, looks like it's just had – Uh, comical problems with candidate selection and the primary process. I mean I think that one of the biggest disasters in American history was direct election of the Senate. There's really no point in having these two plebiscites. Uh, uh, Taxpayers have to pay for both of them. It kind of unwound the purpose of the Senate and representing states. Um, And then I think it's also a terrible mistake to have uh, direct uh, primaries. If you look at what the kind of spectacle and celebrity-based candidacy can do for people who have a vote that are paying only loose attention, Uh, that role for democracy is fine in the uh, House. It was intended to have an only indirect effect on the presidency, and it was intended to have no effect on the Senate, Uh, but now it has this huge effect everywhere, that everything is (laughs) kind of seriousness of... uh, Uh, Housewives of New Jersey kind of, uh, you know, just kind of uh, just this chaotic celebrity uh, spectacle focused. Um, I think that in that environment, which is a a terrible way to do things, it's a terrible way to pick a high quality candidate. It's a terrible way to run a country and you get kind of ludicrous uh, public policy out of it. I think that might have somewhat run its course because it was so bad on the Republican side and so self-defeating, especially with people who are kind of might equals right winner theme, who then go on to lose badly election after election. Uh, You could be a man of high principle and lose and still hold on to your principle. But if your principle is, I'm a winner, and you keep losing, I think that that's going to be something with a finite um, uh, uh, lifespan. Uh, so the Republicans did horribly, especially on the Senate side in picking candidates and winning elections um they did horribly in the House side um two years from now, they have a much better uh senate map um and uh you have a humbled uh, Republican candidate in the form of trump, not personally humble, not humble but humbled in his candidacy. very very badly. I think he would have been um a candidate who could could lose the next election, uh, I think that his odds went down, uh, which helps the Republicans. I think think that Biden is an extremely weak candidate, and his odds went up. So if I was kind of a Machiavellian uh, Republican, uh, uh, I would look at this and think, gosh, this was an unbelievably embarrassing night where we deserved to get embarrassed, we needed to get embarrassed, and did. And on the Democrat side, they were heading in a direction that would be kind of the worst of all worlds for them and they can keep plowing ahead not just with biden but with a kind of unreconstructed flamboyantly woke illiberal leftist direction on spending regulation cultural war issues and so forth so i think that um the uh, democrats could learn all the wrong lessons and there's this glimmer of hope that republicans might finally learn some good lessons on candidate quality that can kind of unite the kind of more uh, populist side with the more traditional kind of limited government uh, side. And they're people, uh, they're really good people who could run and step up. I mean, in state after state, I could have picked a name of a Republican who could have easily won, and, and a total conservative too, not, not a wimp sellout, but a, a real conservative could have won you know, easily in Arizona and New Hampshire and state after state after state, with just lifting a finger on some good tactics. Um, something that's indicative of this area that's really frustrating to me is if you look at kind of the stupidest House members on both sides. Uh, uh, constantly, they say something where I think, well, they finally did it. They went off the deep end now the toast. And then I look at the next FEC reporting and it'll be like the, the biggest fundraising bonanza on both sides in the history of it. So again, you kind of have uh, uh, kind of weirdos and idiots who are able to monetize. Um, and I don't even think of an extremism. I mean, I'm, I'm probably extreme in the directions that I believe. I, mean, I believe that we should have, I think, spend an extremely lesser amount of money than we're spending right now on regulation issues or on Fed issues. I, I, I'm not. This is in no way an argument for moderation. It's an argument for saying things based on facts and doing things for reasons and having some logic applied to it. The people who do that at least have been fundraising dynamos. So there's this real, I think, new era in the past, uh, kind of increasing over the past decade where you can really monetize um, your base and some of the dumbest bases are the most monetizable
0: do you uh do you think the democrats will run biden again um i think they probably
1: will um and i'll only whisper this in case they're listening but they obviously shouldn't um i think that i think he's uh uh I, i think he would lose uh and i think that they have some good people who could win um but they're uh, interestingly, the Democrats tend to be more entrepreneurial about who they go to. The Republicans are tend to be a little bit more uh, hierarchical and seniority-based on who they go to. So maybe the Democrats uh, – and not to be overly macabre about this, but when we're talking about Trump and Biden, right, they're – actuarially, things could change for all sorts of reasons over the next few years. Um, but um, I think they'll probably pick Biden. I think they probably should pick somebody else.
0: So you don't think that – you. you you're saying that if, if they do pick Biden, you think they'll lose? Oh, I think,
1: I think I think that, especially after 2022, that Trump's star went way down, which is very good for Republicans, and that Biden's star went way up, which is very bad for Democrats. Right. And I think of it as a—and um, and what's really tricky is—and this really accrues to the benefit of the governor of Florida for a couple of reasons. One is, one-on-one, I think Trump loses— one on 20 Trump wins. Um, But if the Florida governor is up against Biden, I think that that map across America could look a lot like Florida looked on election night in 2022, which is a multiracial and cross socioeconomic lines, non-woke center to center right majority that includes conservatives and working people and just normal apolitical people and people who think this woke stuff is and, weird. And, and immigrants and from
0: socialist uh, countries who aren't interested yeah. in socialism anymore. That was the most stunning thing about the, the, the Trump election. And even in 2022 was, you know, win, winning Miami-Dade yeah. County, de- destroying it, you know, Republicans dominating, which is just am- am- Amazing,
1: amazing, and not just Cubans who have long been kind of anti-communist, Uh, and uh, kind of get a sniff of socialism from Democrats and get repelled, uh, but Puerto Ricans and people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, But if you look across the country, I think it's really interesting on some of the, uh, and this is my kind of hope for not getting 51%, but getting 60 or 70% of a very, very kind of broad kind of Coalition, big tent coalition uh, that includes kind of knuckle dragging troglodyte wing nuts like me, but also includes a lot of people who just want politics out of their lives and don't want uh, to deal with some of, especially some of these cultural things that are very bad fits for a lot of the different subgroups within America. You know, if you look at Dearborn, Michigan and the uh, big not just very new citizens, but a longstanding uh, kind of prominent uh, Arab-American community there, uh, they are not that excited about a lot of this woke stuff. So when you talk about, hey, let's teach your little kids um, things that are neither factually true nor fit within your family culture about uh, gender and so forth, you had all these rednecks and all these Arabs together, kind of really seriously confronting the school boards on (laughs) both stuff. And so I thought like, man, this is like, I never thought what a um, kind of backlash would look like, but it's very interesting. It's very multiracial and it's very um, uh, multi uh, kind of uh, uh, working class as well as uh, yuppie. Uh, uh, type people, right? There's a lot of people who are not comfortable with, uh, and and think about Biden, who I think of as a very normal Democrat. Almost
0: as if everybody is all together in the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, regardless of race. Almost as if, right?
1: I got to think it's a huge, I got to think it's tens of millions of Americans, very, very uncomfortable confronting the most ascendant loudest very online very on twitter a uh, young uh, uh cohort if you look at biden as kind of a normal democrat all the energy of his party is to his left right he and i think because he's old and because of health and so forth he's very deferential but if you look at who he has to defer to it's uh the kind of uh woke illiberal leftist mob that are the most extreme, but the funny thing about it is it also happens to be really, really white and really, really elite. Right. And, uh, and if you listen to actual kind of regular Americans of all walks of life from all backgrounds, um, almost nobody wants anything to do with it. And what's interesting is because woke ideology... Even if it's a white elite phenomenon, because it uses the vernacular of race, a lot of white people have no idea how to confront it or how to respond and just cower and are silent. And so that can be mistaken for agreement, but then you have people who come from different parts of the world who never had anything to do with our own kind of cultural baggage, and they show up and they think, this stuff's nuts, right? Right. This makes no sense at all. So you have things like, I mean, a good example um, is the battles over um, uh, uh, secondary education and awards that the public schools have been just hiding because they don't want meritocracy to make any individual or any groups feel bad if other people are winning uh, merit, Uh, scholarships, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's appalling and ridiculous, and it hurts all sorts of people, including a lot of new uh, uh, citizens. Uh, And uh, it is being done in a way that I think is bringing into politics a lot of parents, uh, because especially during COVID, they saw how Aggressive and ridiculous. A lot of the public school uh, policies were including on the topic of merit. So, just people who just want kind of a normal future, who aren't even maybe who thrust themselves into politics when things get really bad, but kind of want to be able to extract themselves. If they joined with people who love politics and were fervent about it and enjoy talking about Fed policy and so forth, I th- I think that's you know six. I think that could look in America the way that. Florida lucked in twenty
0: twenty two. Well, and I don't want to speak for any minorities, certainly, but I would guess that there. You know, in Philadelphia last night, one of our hockey players didn't take warm ups. Ivan Provorov didn't take warm ups because everybody was wearing uh, pride flag warm up uh, jerseys, right? So mm-hmm. they have the players go out and wear. Um, pride flag jerseys while they're shooting their warmups. And then I guess they put their regular jerseys back on for the game. And he uh, he didn't make any statements and he didn't make any, you know, huff and puff about it. He just didn't partake in the warmups. And so that became a huge story. And then it came out that, you know, his you know, he abstained due to his religious beliefs, he said. And Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the ways that somebody characterized it when they were criticizing him was that you know he went out of his way to to harm people by doing that. He went out of his way to do something harmful. Now I don't know. Maybe it's just how I look at things, and I am uh, a pro gay rights. I'm pro gay marriage. Uh, you know, socially I'm very liberal, um, but you know I don't see that as going out of your way. I see that as abstaining, which I think is a very different. Uh, type of uh, gesture than going out and making a making a statement or doing something like that. So uh, the point I'm trying to get to here is that I'm wondering that if in the case of Mr. Provorov or in the case of some of these minorities in Dearborn, Michigan, that you're talking about, and in the case of the Arabs that are joining hands with the rednecks uh, to kind of hopefully get to the same place for their family and their community. I'm wondering if people are just getting sick of being involuntarily deputized in whatever campaign of the day, week, month, year is going on. I- I'm wondering if it has less to do with you know whether or not he believes in in you know gay marriage or not, and more to do with he doesn't want to you know be involuntarily part and parcel of. You know, some type of movement. Now, you have to have some nuance here because, again, I'm, you know, I am about as socially liberal as they come. I don't think the government should be making any type of decisions about what anybody does with their social life, with their sexual life, with their marriage life. You know, that that's that's that person's personal business. And I support, you know, any way that people want to live their social life. Some things I find ridiculous you know, but that's my right. I still support people's rights to go out and, you know, dress in a dog mask and bark like a dog if they want, if that's what makes them happy. Fine. But what I'll say is, you know, here, here's a good example. When I loaded up uh, FIFA, the video game, like mm-hmm. uh, last year, I remember I bought the new FIFA. Love playing the video game, love soccer. Like, one of my favorites. I've been playing FIFA for 20 years. Before the game came up, There was a there was a screen that said, you know, here at FIFA, we don't believe in racism. We don't believe in sexual discrimination and this and that and the other and blah, 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 blah. blah, This big, long fucking, you know, virtue signaling diatribe. And at the bottom, it said agree. And if you didn't click agree, you couldn't play the game. And, you know, uh, who else did this some years back? Bumble did this, the dating app where. You know, you log on and it says here at Bumble, we support, you know, everybody's sexual, religion, orientation, whatever, blah, 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 blah. In order to use the app, you know, you have to agree by these terms. The same thing. Agree. You have to hit the agree button to move forward. Okay. now putting aside the fact that I support those causes, I support gay rights, I support gay marriage, I support individual liberty. I don't like being forced to fucking agree with like an ideology, just because somebody tells me that I have to agree with it, you know, and and it, I mean, how much of it do you think is that? I, I can't imagine what it would it must be like for, and you know. So-
1: I, I I think that the. Universities have gotten to be so one-sided that it's atrophied their skill to argue and debate and to live in a pluralistic civil society. So I think right. that there is this fear. Um, I uh, am for marriage equality and against racism so strongly that I don't feel the need to put those thoughts in the heads or in the mouths of anybody else but me i can speak up for myself exactly. uh, with total confidence on those issues i'm not embarrassed by my view on those issues uh if i could tweak historically i was for marriage equality long before obama said that he was for it I, I thought it was kind of an an obvious right thing but to me the the, the only tweak i'd love to make is i wish. We'd always call it marriage freedom and not marriage equality. To 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 remind, this is just part of a civil society and part of a pluralistic world, and we can uh, uh, we can defend these things. Uh, but this kind of illiberal uh, uh, insistence on uniformity uh, is creepy. It's dumb. It is, uh, is. both. It is both a symptom of and will exacerbate this atrophying this weird atrophy where uh you hear and, and one of the ticks uh that they use is this strange misapplication of the idea of violence where they both are a little bit uh, coy right. about confronting actual physical violence and then when or, or uh, hate and then, right and then use it to describe you know the thing that's you appear to be saying something different than what I'm telling you to say right now. And that is violence or that is hate. Right. Uh, Or misinformation. And, and and so they have these, um, and, 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 and it's, and I think they're going to lose people. I mean, my biggest fear is that it actually creates in some sufficient number to have some power of the thing that they almost like Tourette's keep accusing people of. Right. Like I, I am pretty happy to infinitely reject uh, 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 vapid accusations of anything that they could throw out, including racism. I I could just say no infinity times, or ignore them infinity times. But some number of people, if you're just going to throw around insults endlessly, without evidence, are going to own the things that they are being accused of in ways that could be really uh, terrible for society. Uh, hopefully, far short of that, uh, this whole thing will just be rejected, and people will say, no, you're not gonna deputize me into saying your uh, point, you can you can make your point and I'll make my points. And my point is frequently not to make any. I mean, I, I love talking with you about this. I've long largely pulled out of politics. I've completely pulled out of political spending. I've largely pulled out of political activity. I've thrown it into, time outside of work in uh, fitness largely, in, um, in CrossFit, Jiu-Jitsu and different things where I've actually found so many more different types of Americans in different walks of life where I've actually – I feel like I have a better finger on the pulse of this country just spending my time in Jiu-Jitsu and CrossFit and at the gym at 5 in the morning with all kinds of people uh, and like listening and just and, – and getting to know people who – uh, when there's no audience and you're just dealing with kind of people's own views, it makes me so far more optimistic than listening to the overt political discourse. Nobody, I just think...
0: nobody gives a fuck at jiu-jitsu what color, what sex, what sexual orientation, what race, what ideology, what type of family, what country you're from, nobody gives a fuck. You go to Jiu-Jitsu and everybody is there to learn. Everybody's there to get a workout in. Everybody's there to spar. Everybody's there. No one gives a fuck. I've been training for, I don't know, six years or something, five years, and I can count on one hand but probably less than three fingers the amount of time anybody has brought up anything involving race, color, sex, creed, politics at a jujitsu gym, you know, which is just what makes it so odd for me when I turn on the TV or you listen to a political speech and the only thing you hear about is identity, 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 identity.
1: It's it's, it's, uh, exactly my experience. Uh, It's for me, It's an environment that is almost like heaven. Like, it's what heaven would be like in terms of how people interact with each other. Uh, A deep, like, love for people who couldn't be more different in these ways um, that we are told from a distance set us against each other and that we have to rub our nose in because it's treated with complete benign neglect. Like, I would say months and months and months go by with no reference whatsoever because we, because we got stuff to do, right? Like we
0: don't, um, on, and there's uh, a deep, there's uh, a reverence and a respect just for getting on the mat.
1: Yeah. And, and, and if months into it, um, uh, uh you know, and, and we have every type of person you could imagine, uh, there's some reference. You have so many things in common, such deep connection to fellow humans that our differences are treated with this, like, superficial, like, mirth. Like, there might be right. some joke or some light-hearted thing, uh, and then you have to remind yourself, oh, yeah, that is different for uh, somebody, you know, you know d- uh, in, in whatever group for whatever reason, and it just seems so trivial compared to the deep important things you have together, and it's because in an actual human interaction where you're allowed to explore all your commonalities and your nose isn't rubbed in your differences that you have to in this political adversarial environment confront right away, having broken through that, you have this actual community. You have actually, right. like, this is what America should look like. This exactly. is how Exactly. And it's, it should be.
0: it's proof positive that the tail can't wag the dog, which is you can't assume that everybody is one way or another because of their identity, which of course mm-hmm. is, you know, where the idea of prejudice comes from to begin with, where you're prejudging somebody, right? So it's fascinating to to live experiences like that. You know, the things that I participate in, I go to a run club, okay, also similar to jiu-jitsu. Everybody's there to run, you know. Do I really notice, like, if there's men, women, if we're black, white, what sexual orientation we are, what religion we are, what race we are, what country we're from? No. I don't give a fuck. I know I run with this guy because he runs at this pace. I know that there's a you know a, another woman that's faster than me that sometimes I try to catch. There's some other people that are slower than me that I don't like to let catch up to me. There's people I like talking to. There's people I can talk to about certain things. I'm not thinking about their identity. I'm not thinking, which is what's crazy. And this you know this is why it's so crazy to somebody like me when a year ago there was a. Um, a headline that you know united airlines was had committed to hiring um had committed that 50 percent of the pilots it was going to hire over the next year would be people of color or something like that and i responded to that online by saying let's just hire the best pilots okay not not saying that those are not people of color or they are people of color just saying Let's do this like a meritocracy. If I'm on an airplane, I want a qualified individual in the cockpit. I don't care if it's a donkey. If it's a gay donkey with, you know, uh, Marxist, I don't really give a shit, right? I just want the plane to take off and to land, and that's what United should be focused on. So that was my comment, you know, and I got into this thing with somebody who called me a racist for saying that. I said, "There's, there's there's nothing racist about wanting a competent pilot to fly and saying that should be the priority over identity the, the the you know the meritocracy should be should be the priority over identity right and the person said well you know you're just a racist and you don't even know it it's so ingrained in you that you just don't even know it and that's the kind of that's the tail wagging the dog kind of shit Where I'm just like, oh, okay, you know, because I'm a white male, that automatically makes me a racist. Oh, oh, and I don't even know it. I'm too dumb to understand it, Chris. You know, it's the product of centuries of, uh, you know, uh, institutional racism that have been uh, so ingrained in my DNA that I will never see it unless I take one of their courses. You know, like, I, I don't know. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that just it just makes no sense to me. Because I, in my personal life, that's... And I don't want to speak for minorities. I don't want to speak for people of color or people that are of different orientations in any way that I am. But to me, when I, when I go to the gym or even, you know, when I'm dating or when I'm, you know, when I'm out in social interactions, I just... I don't know. Those things just don't register to me. It's not... I never look at this guy and say, oh, hey, he's from, you know, he's this color. He's this orientation. I don't really give a shit, to be honest with you.
1: Well, the two things that make me most optimistic are that the World Economic Forum is going on right now. And if you look at the wholesale corruption of American elites over the last couple of years and I mean longer than that, but if you look at elite corruption, if you look at Some of the biggest news stories that kind of just fade with time, that's the latest topic for a while, but with very, very, very little um, uh, in terms of uh, accountability. Um, you You look at the Jeff Epstein scandal, you look at FTX, you look at individual crimes that cannot exist without many, many other crimes on the other side of it, and then just they kind of fade away. I think that the total um, uh, unmasking of a calcified elite is going to lead to something else. And if you look at uh, how much energy they spend kind of defending a managerial class that's gotten pretty stupid and worthless. You look at, um, there was an amazing chart I saw recently on IQ by advanced degrees. And advanced degrees used to be something that like, you clearly need a certain pretty darn small subset of jobs have very very specialized education that needs to go with it, and these are going to be very intelligent people. But you don't need like huge numbers of you know associate provosts at Bennington who have a education degree and uh, a master's. Uh, uh, like 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 these kind of this kind of mass class managerial class has just been getting dumber and dumber each year, down to the point where they have very little to uh tell in terms of why they should have policies and preferences over you know guys that are mechanics guys that have uh, guys and gals that have like jobs that are things that need to be done in a society and so I think that they are pretty done for and if you look at emergent uh, I think I think if you look at emergent uh, uh, political influences one that I'm most hopeful for is that you have, a lot of groups in America that are doing incredibly well by any objective measurements. I mean, women are doing better than men in higher education, number one. And two, native-born Americans are slipping kind of down to like the middling part of the pack if you break out by home country origin. And there are places at the very top, including Nigeria, where Nigerian Americans are just doing white-hot well in education and in uh, uh, professional accomplishment and per capita GDP. I mean, they're killing it. Um, and I know a bunch of Nigerians from uh, jujitsu, of all things. Um, but uh, so you have these groups that come in and are kind of like, kind of shaking up. Uh, the fact pattern that I'm hoping has a big follow-through in politics that says, hey, let's just have a refresh that's based on merit, that's based on the private sector, that's based on liberty, and that there's a lot of ideas that are kind of old American ideas but will have a lot of new uh, converts and uh, adherents.
0: Yeah, and Bill, because that makes it kind of, uh, you know it's like what do people see with the you believe your lying eyes you know when you have a bunch of white intellectual phds talking about how you know uh how racist republicans are and you know on the republican side you have you know larry elder who's yeah. black being called the black face of white supremacy you're just like uh i don't know maybe a little bit stretched there maybe a little bit of a stretch there and and you know you're seeing like muslim americans that um, are more on the conservative side, are now running for office, they're running for House Representative, they're running for Senate. Um, so you're seeing this great diversification on both sides of the aisle, which I think uh, you know, I think will be helpful. I think hopefully it'll it'll bring us all together and make us realize that, you know we do have a lot of shared common interests. I mean, look people on the far, far, far left, I think, unfortunately, sometimes are are, are acting out um, yeah. for other reasons. But yeah, I think generally are... people towards the center-left and the center-right want the same thing, which is they want freedom, they want peace, they are generally humanitarian, they want good things, they want community, they want safety and security, they want equality— you know, I think we all kind of fall in that group. It's just how are we going to get there?
1: And I hope that there is an opportunity for a refresh. One of the parts of that that we haven't talked about is I think we need a much younger cohort of leaders um, and uh, not a comment on his politics but i think it's great that the democrats just picked a new um a leader in the house who's much younger i think that we there's a lot of people in their 30s and 40s that could take over from people in their 70s and 80s and that, that would be an improvement. You know, uh, one, one of the shining bright lights out of the World Economic Forum is so if you saw the prime minister of Finland, every time I lo- look at their prime minister, I think, why is it again that we have to have people, you know, twice or three right. times her age uh, 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 running everything? Right. If the government's really too big and complicated for a 30-something-year-old uh, mom to run, then it's too big and complicated. You uh, I think.
0: They're... fucking get tired of looking at them, too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I... I align myself with some of Mitch McConnell's policy decisions, but I just can't stand this fucking sight of him anymore. You know what I mean? Like, what am I going to do? Are I got to sit here and watch this guy fucking age to be 152 years old? Like, just fucking retire. You know what I mean? Just retire. It's like Pelosi. You know, yeah. thank God she just bowed out too. You know, saying nothing about her policies, which obviously I don't agree with. You know, I'm just, just get the fuck out. You know, we need some new young fresh blood we need people that think a little bit differently i think you make a great point there so that's what i got anything
1: else uh, we should uh no i want for?
0: you to uh i want you to just tell the listeners where they can find you uh sure. if they're interested in following up and uh then i will let you go my friend
1: Well, it's been great speaking with you. Um, I am uh, pretty online, so um, I write on Seeking Alpha, specifically uh, run a community called Sifting the World. Uh, There are memberships. There's a subscription. uh, Look up if you're interested, uh, uh, and my ideas are there, um, and I have more on the kind of three I mentioned today uh, involving – Poland, Mexico, uh, and uh, CEE for Russia uh, in terms of international uh, country markets. And uh, we'll, uh, hope, hopefully, if invited, uh, we'll uh, write more on uh, fringe finance uh, uh, on, uh, on Substack in terms of investing ideas. And then I also write my personal journals uh, called Valley Tudu, which is uh, about uh, jujitsu and other uh, personal exploits that I'm working on.
0: Yeah, I definitely don't have the smarts to thatch up investing ideas like you do. Um, But I've known you for long enough, and I've read enough of your stuff to know that your ideas are generally extremely insightful and very organic. And I at least have the sound and somewhat soberish mind to know that you're one of uh, many people that I like to aggregate from and hear from and listen to. So you're welcome to contribute Uh, anytime and thank you so much just for coming on the podcast i'm sorry it's been the first time now in episode 300 whatever but uh let's not make it the last all right
1: that'd be great enjoyed talking with you all
0: right thanks so much that was chris demuth ladies and gentlemen uh wonderful to have him on And uh, great conversation, good perspectives, you know, cautious, I think, a little bit with what he says sometimes when we're in uh, some of the political territory. But I respect that about him. He's a respectable guy. A lot of people that I know respect him. Certainly, again, I've read and listened to a lot of his ideas over the years. None of it, uh, none of it is wood. He's got great ideas. And uh, he's somebody that on on a short list of people, you know, maybe 10 people I'd rattle up off the top of my head that I would... Strongly consider their opinions when it comes to investing in individual equities. He's one of them. Uh, I would definitely, uh, what he writes, I think is worth reading. So happy to have him on. Happy to have you guys for listening. Thank you so much. Say hi on my Substack Fringe Finance, uh, where I occasionally churn out the old, occasional brain fart about an equity or two myself. (laughs) Mostly I just repeat myself and prattle on. Uh, But I thank you for your support nonetheless, and uh, I'll be back soon. I'm out now. Peace.